So Ryan McGee, I've been I've been waiting to talk to you about your alma mater for just a couple weeks now. So thank you for thank you for volunteering as tribute, as it were. That was fantastic, by the way. And yeah, I think I finally have the uh, the cigar smoke fumigated out of my clothes from a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I mean, should we start with a couple of weeks ago? Because so much has happened, right? You, I mean, truly, like five ranked teams have just been felled by the University of Tennessee. You guys just beat Kentucky this past weekend. But you were there. You were there for what? The greatest scene of the college football season by far? The most anticipated game in these parts in three decades, and it's come down to two seconds. Fifteen years of losses for the Crimson Tide for the Tennessee Volunteers. College football is built on passion. That's why we love it. That's why I think it's the greatest sport in the world. But I also have to work. And, <laughs> and so you check. I learned this from my father, who was a college football official for 40 years. You, you check mm. it at the door, right? You, and you go into the press box or, or you go wherever you're going and you work the game. And yes, I worked the game. Uh, yes, I kept it all compartmentalized. Yes, I wrote my column. And yes, as soon as my editor said, you're clear, I met up with Captain Morgan and we headed down to the strip and smoked a cigar and uh, I pulled on my uh, my orange and white checkerboard socks. <laughs> Chase McGrath for the win for the Volunteers from 40. On the way, a knuckleball. He got it! And here they come. So, McGee, you have lived the story of Tennessee football in ways that I truly did not appreciate until I started preparing for this show. So take us back here, man. How did you first become a fan? So I was looking at colleges. I was in high school in the Carolinas. Tennessee wasn't even on my radar. And my father was a longtime college football official, and he said, hey, I'm going to work a game in Knoxville this weekend. Do you want to go? Sure. So we went, and uh, and I was going to go to Georgia, or I was going to go to South Carolina. I was going to go to NC State. I had a short list of schools. And I went to Tennessee, and I'd never seen anything like Neyland Stadium. What a feeling it is to bust out onto this field with 90,000-plus just waiting for you. And here come the Tennessee Volunteers, winners of eight consecutive games. And I've been going to college football games since I could walk. And I had never heard a place that loud. And I had never seen, you know, something like the Vol Navy. About 1,000 fans come in on 300 vessels up the Tennessee River, which is adjacent here to the stadium. It's a fascinating way to come to a college football game. Everyone in the stadium recited everything that the public address announcer said, right up <laughs> until they ran through the tee. It was the most incredible college football experience I'd ever had. Less than a year later, I was I was living on the hill and going to class, seeing the big orange Jesus, what my college roommates and I refer to it as. <laughs> and I saw the big orange Jesus that day. So you walk towards the light on your visit to Knoxville on this unintentional recruiting trip, and you're describing things that honestly, like, till this season, felt kind of like a secret to me. Like, I didn't realize that Tennessee belonged in the pantheon of college football culture. And why is that? It was not a secret. And it has become a secret. And it's only because you're not winning. The country kind of forgot about them. 
You know, Tennessee is top 10 all-time in wins. It's top five all-time in bowl games. It's 13th all-time in All-Americans. You know, it's 10th all-time in first-round NFL draft picks. They've been ranked number one, I think, 20-something weeks over the years. They've been ranked in the top 10, like 600-something weeks. I mean, they're they're in the top 15 list of everything. And it hurts your heart as a Tennessee alum or as a fan or, or just as someone who loves college football when the great programs end up being described the way you're describing it as a secret. And now all of a sudden, guess what? Everybody wants to go you know, ride with the Vol Navy. Everyone wants to watch Tennessee run through the T, and all these things are back. And wonder why? Because they're winning. Because they're winning. <laughs> and you know, when, when you win football games, it's amazing how it fixes everything. There are lots of ways to describe what is happening in Knoxville, Tennessee right now. And the first set of college football playoff rankings, which come out tonight, are one of them. They will validate the surprising resurrection of a fallen football city. But today, ahead of number two Tennessee taking on number one Georgia on Saturday in what might be the game of the year, we turn to the descriptive powers of Ryan McGee, a man who takes us on a personal tour of his alma mater slash former employer from Rocky Top to Rock Bottom and then back again. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Tuesday, November 1st. This is ESPN Daily. So your university, McGee, the University of Tennessee, which is clearly having this national moment right now. I want to try and tell the story of this team, which has gone from the pinnacle to an afterthought to now back to these dizzying highs through you, because you are a person who had a personal conversion looking at colleges and you turned that conversion into enrollment and then into love and then into a paycheck apparently because you worked for the program. So how did that job come about? So I was a broadcasting major, was a communications major, was looking for some sort of job in the business. This was in the early 90s. And Tennessee was way out ahead of most uh, athletic departments around the nation when it came to video. <laughs> and I started working on the Johnny Major show and the Pat Summit show and Big Orange Sunday, which reported on the golf and baseball and everything else. And that led to a job with the football team. So I was on the video crew. I was on a tower for three years. I was on the offensive tower uh, shooting Carl Pickens uh, versus Dale Carter in one-on-one drills every day. I mean, it was... It was ridiculous that what I got to see every single day. And I was on the tower with Johnny Majors. And Johnny Majors, for people unfamiliar, is synonymous with Tennessee football. He was this All-American halfback who became the coach of the team for 16 seasons, winning a zillion games. And so what was it like for you to be on the tower with Coach Majors? It uh, was a cacophony of sound. Check, 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 check. He had a bullhorn. But the great thing about Coach Majors was he was larger than life. So Coach Majors should have won the Heisman Trophy in 1956. One of the greatest, if not uh, the greatest player at Tennessee until that, that Manning guy was on the team. And Coach Majors you know, won a national championship at Pitt with Tony Dorsett, which he was always quick to remind people was not Dorsett, it was Dorsett. <laughs> and, and then he left and came home and wrote a book, You Can Come Home Again. And he came to Knoxville, struggled for years, 
And then right around the time I got there, that team started rolling. And Dale Carter, fittingly one of the finest defensive backs in the country, picks it off and ends the Sugar Bowl as he runs it back to the 25. And the Volunteers erase a 16-point deficit and give Johnny Majors another bowl victory. I mean, winning 10 and 11 games a year and contending for national titles. And every day on the tower, this larger-than-life guy who walked across Johnny Majors Boulevard to get to work and walked through a museum to get to his office that had an entire display of Johnny Majors stuff and walked down the hallway past a painted portrait of Johnny Majors to get to his (laughs) own office. And every day he would get on that tower, Pablo, and he would ask me, how'd I do on my math test? Was I still dating that girl from Gallatin? What game was my dad refereeing this weekend? He was a god on earth that was completely approachable. It was amazing. You're kind of describing hanging out with a pharaoh inside of his yeah. pyramid. No, that's what it was. That's <laughs> what it was. And everyone always tried to tell me, oh, he's out of touch and you know, he's too big of a deal. That was the most normal demigod I ever hung out with. <laughs> and he was my coach. I mean, I wrote the column when he passed away. Uh, not so long ago, you know, you, you, everyone should have that one person in their life that they call coach. And I was not a college athlete, but Coach Majors was the one I called coach right up until the, the day that he passed. I do want to get to the way that his tenure at Tennessee ended, because I do know from the outside, it seemed pretty damn dramatic, McGee. How would you trace that trajectory? The book I will write one day is how all that went down. I was a senior. Philip Fulmer was the offensive coordinator. Coach Majors had a heart attack uh, right before the start of the 1992 season and missed the first handful of games. And then even when he returned, stayed in the press box and wasn't on the sideline. And so Philip Fulmer was the interim head coach. Philip Fulmer got all this credit for the fact that this offense suddenly opened up. Mm -hmm. The reason it opened up was when he was promoted to interim head coach, David Cutcliffe, one of the great offensive minds in, in my mind of the last 40 years in college football. Yes, a legendary name now because he has worked with the Mannings and has exactly. become like a guru of quarterbacks. And and David Cutler started running the offense. So they started scoring points and started winning games and they started the year off undefeated. And then when Coach Majors came back and the offense got very conservative, they lost three in a row. And in the middle of all that, Philip Fulmer was going around to the people that had the money and and the boosters and was like, you know, You saw how good it was with me, right? It's not that great now, now that Coach Majors is back. Mm. And so it it was a mess. And and I remember Johnny Majors walking in with the Knoxville News Sentinel, and they had a story where they had gone through the phone records and found all the phone calls that Philip Fulmer had made and that were made to him by, you know, the people that, that controlled the purse strings. This feels like heresy, though. This feels, to speak of the demigod, it feels like something that is beyond the line. Everyone knows this about me, so this is no secret. I'm not a Philip Former guy, never will be, uh, because I lived how all that went down, and I saw how all that went down, and I saw how it affected everyone in the building, people that had worked there forever, um, people that were, that, were, that were earmarked as loyal to Coach Majors were told they needed to go find another job all the way down to people who just have part-time jobs in the building. And so I, I will forever be thankful as a Tennessee alum that Philip Fulmer was you know, the coach that finally got the team to a national title in 1998. But I will always hold it against him 
till the day I'm gone uh, of how Coach Majors was forced out, and, and it's very obvious who was behind all that. And then I remember Coach Majors went back to Pitt, and it broke his heart so much the way it went down. And, and when he and I talked about it, he would say, listen, if it was time to make a change, it was time to make a change, but I just can't believe how it went down. And I remember my father, who was an official in the Big East at the time, he wrote the story in the book that we did a couple years ago. Yeah. And, you know, Dad was on the sideline at Pitt, and right in the middle of a game, like against Miami, Coach Majors puts his arm around my dad, and he goes, can you believe my alma mater did that to me? <laughs> After the break, how all of that chaos at your alma mater was just beginning. Delicious meat nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot. Taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. All of this palace intrigue that you're describing, it does kind of foreshadow what was to come, like the chaos, right? I mean, when Philip Fulmer ascends to that job and he's the guy in the tower now and he has the steering wheel for the best years in the history of the program, this is where, hey, Peyton Manning becomes a name that I came to know. This is where a march to the national championship takes place. What was it like for you to watch all of that? Well, as a as an alum and having just graduated, having just been in the building right before that and still knowing a lot of the people that worked in the athletic department and still knowing a lot of the players, there's nothing wrong with winning a national championship. And there's certainly nothing wrong with, with signing a Peyton Manning. The ascent was very quick. You know, the part that no one talks about is you know, after the Tennessee won the national championship in 1998, which, by the way, kids, Peyton Manning wasn't the quarterback on that team. T. Martin was. And if you ever want to see Peyton Manning's face turn very <laughs> red and irritated very quickly, you just, just bring that up. But if you look at the next decade with Philip Fulmer, there were moments and there were seasons. I mean, he won double-digit games, or that team won double-digit games four times. And then it was, you know, a lot of bowl game losses and, you know, a, a couple of heartbreak losses in the SEC championship game. And then there were a lot of arrests. You know, the Fulmer Cup is named the Fulmer Cup for a reason. You know, it's that point system that's on the internet or it's teams that get in trouble off the right. field. The FulmerCup.com is where you can find those standings, yeah. incidentally, yeah. for the world's most prestigious college football award based on criminal record, as yeah. the heading reads. People forget this now, but the Philip Fulmer era 
ended, I mean, it was ugly. Everyone wanted him out. The fan base was very vocal about wanting him out because it felt like the team had fallen into this, we're okay every couple of years, but kind of hover just barely above 500, and we're not beating the teams that we should beat. And it just was a malaise, and we need excitement. You know, this team looks an awful lot like the team from the 90s, and we're not evolving. So what do you do? You get rid of the old guy that's been around forever, and you hire a young, cool guy in Lane Kiffin, who's, you know, running that West Coast USC offense. Right, in his 30s. And it felt cool for a minute. And he was funny. You know, he was hilarious in press conferences, and he knew his team wasn't very good, so... He kind of took up that microphone, like put the attention on me while while the team was behind him trying to get their work done and trying to improve. He did a, a much better job of holding it together than he was given credit for at the time. You know, I go back to Lane Kiffin's one year in 2009, and I remember going to spring practice and Lane walking over and him confiding to a couple of us, I don't have anyone who could snap the damn football to the quarterback. <laughs> and that was, and he was just saying, I can't believe how bare the cupboard is here. And that's that erosion that I'm talking about that had taken place, you know, in the last, you know, gosh, really the last six, seven years of the, of the former era. And obviously Lane Kiffin left in one of the weirdest, strangest nights. You got to tell this story, McGee, because it, it's happened. It, this is now over a decade ago. And I feel like people, the kids need to appreciate what the hell happened. So Tennessee in 2009 overachieved. That team was not very good. They were seven and six. The reality is they were one blocked field goal away from from upsetting Alabama that year. The stage seemed to be set for Lane Kiffin and an era of exciting, fun, winning football. And he said time and time again, the only job I would leave this job for is at Southern Cal. He was on the Pete Carroll staffs at USC. He, he was there for some of the greatest moments ever. And that job came open and they called. And so he left. And the University of Tennessee and the great Bud Ford, who was the sports information director there forever, Bud told Lane, you're not leaving until you address the media. It's been an exciting time. And, and I know that I can walk out here and say this, that we've been here for 14 months and there's not one day that I didn't get everything I had to the Tennessee football program. Now, Lane says he wanted to address the media. However it went down, Lane Kiffin in the football building walked into a conference room with a handful of reporters. And while that happened, the Tennessee students literally started burning the, the campus down. Tuesday night, UT students spray-painted the name Lane on the campus rock, along with a variety of other four-letter words. So we have this thing on campus called The Rock. Mm. And they have painted on The Rock a lot of stuff that you can't say uh, on a microphone. Right. The, the Rock is kind of like this uh, billboard where everybody gets to write stuff on it, I guess, is how you describe it. It's on Fraternity it. Row. Yep. It's a giant rock. It just sits there. And, when, you know, if you got if the homecoming dance is coming, you paint that on The Rock, right? If you want to ask your girlfriend to marry, you paint that on The Rock. You know, and, and this time... There was no love involved. The crowd set fire to a mattress and a trash can outside the athletic center where Kiffin held his press conference. The mob made a final stop at Neyland Stadium. 
Some students knocked over a chain-link construction fence, while a few others attempted to climb inside the stadium. Police eventually cleared the crowd, shut down the road, and students left the scene without any more incidents. And so at this point, we're more than a decade removed from Tennessee's national title in 98, and Phil Fulmer, who was the coach of that team, finally gets fired in 2008, though he would wind up haunting the program as an administrator in ways that we truly don't have the time to summarize here. But they turn to Lane Kiffin, as you said, who lasted just one year after that. He leaves Rocky Top literally on fire. And so in 2010, how does the university try to put out these flames? The answer to that was we need administrative help and football help. So they hired Derek Dooley. The Derek Dooley era is the perfect encapsulation of Tennessee football from 2009 until this year, which is if you were a Tennessee loyalist, you wanted so badly for it to work. And in a lot of cases, you really liked the person who was standing at the microphone and was you know holding the clipboard on the sideline. But deep down in your heart, you knew it wasn't going to work. Mm. But you're describing a desperation. Yep. And also simultaneously a delusion. Yep. Delusion is a perfect word because everyone... They believed in their heart that Tennessee was just one or two steps away from getting back to where it was and one or two steps away from getting back to fighting with Alabama shoulder to shoulder every year. And the reality is Tennessee was so far behind and no one had any idea. No one in the building had any idea. The glimpse of hope came in the middle of the Butch Jones era. They had a couple of classic moments arguably the greatest moment of Tennessee football until what we've experienced lately was the Dobbs nail boot Hail Mary against Georgia at Georgia. To the end zone, the pass is going to be caught by Tennessee. Tennessee wins! Caught it by Tennessee, Jawan Jennings. Jennings makes the catch in the end zone on the Hail Mary. I don't believe I saw that. Tennessee's back, baby. Here we go. Going into the top ten, just to upset Georgia Georgia. They lost the next three in a row. Yeah. And so every time the team got their toes right up on it, something happened, and and it just didn't work out. And so to me, that kind of summed it up. And then there was this weird internet thing that started to take over. Every time a coach's name would be attached to the job, and I had multiple coaches call me in the middle of the night and go, is it like this there all the time? <laughs> and, and, I, and I would plead with the Tennessee fan base, calm down. You're taking yourself out of the running for a lot of guys that you could hire. And so what did rock bottom look like? As somebody who had been up in the tower surveying a kingdom, what did the very bottom of it seem like? It looked like 2020. In 2020, I think they finished three and seven. That was the COVID year. They, they didn't play in their bowl game because of COVID. Uh, Jeremy Pruitt was fired at the end of all this. And the reason he was fired wasn't the losing. He was fired because of the losing. Plus, all of a sudden, there are reports of massive recruiting violations. It's cash in a McDonald's bag being given <laughs> to a recruit. I mean, it's like, you know, pretty I on remember, the nose. I, yeah. yeah. So, all this ends with Jeremy Pruitt uh, being fired. Uh, he's immediately following defamation lawsuits, all that stuff. And the reality was they finally hit the reset button on everything. And that's what they should have done a long time ago. 
coming up. The coach and the quarterback that are successfully rebooting the University of Tennessee. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home some huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Okay, so now we're pretty close to the present, McGee. And the present is marked by the arrival of Josh Heupel. And I think there are probably a lot of people who just don't know Josh Heupel. So this is the Heisman runner-up for Oklahoma in 2000. He was the head coach at the University of Central Florida from 2018 to 2020. And he takes over your program in 2021, last season. And so he is the latest would-be savior. And so for this fan base that is desperate slash delusional, that has been obsessed with these job searches, how did Hypo land this job in the first place? Well, Danny White was hired as athletic director from Central Florida. Josh Hypo's offensive coordinator and eventually the head football coach. And so Hypo was Danny White's guy. And when Danny White realized that he wasn't going to be able to hire Bill Belichick or Nick Saban uh, at Tennessee. He went and got his guy, who's the guy he wanted anyway, and he knew he could do that. And the part of all this that cannot be possibly overstated is the biggest issue at Tennessee forever was the main players very rarely were all rowing in the same direction. When Philip Fulmer was the coach, he would be at odds with the chancellor or the athletic director. You mean the political players here, the powerful people, yeah. Right, the political players. So, you know, it's a triumvirate. It is. The head football coach is the athletic director or the chancellor. For the first time in my adult life, the woman who runs the university, the man who runs the athletic department, and the man who coaches the football team are all on the same page. The tripod could stand upright. That's it. It can. And it's you cannot possibly overstate that. But in terms of the actual players on the field, how has Josh Heupel been able to turn all of this around so quickly? He has recognized talent. When he walked in the building, he realized he had some guys, but he also had the benefit of the transfer portal. Hendon Hooker came to Knoxville from Blacksburg, Virginia. They did not know what to do with him in Blacksburg. 
he looked like a pretty pedestrian third string quarterback when he was at Virginia Tech. Mm. But the staff at Tennessee knew that guy right there can run and gun. And that's the offense that they run. Here's the option play. Hooker comes to the near side. Whoa, what a move. Takes it into the end zone. Touchdown, Hendon Hooker. They faked the pitch, turned it right into the end zone, and Tennessee has answered the Florida touchdown with a touchdown of its own. And so they also knew his attitude. And if you've ever spent any time with him at all, that kid is so sharp. He is so smart. It's like talking to a 40-year-old when you sit down and talk with him. He's just Hmm. written a children's book with his brother. I mean, he's just a smart guy. And so it wasn't just about the arm, and it wasn't just about the football smarts. They also said how he carried himself. Even when he was struggling in Virginia Tech, and even when, you know, his whole life he'd been the best player on the field, and now he's somewhere where they don't know what to do with him. The body language told them that his confidence never went away. And the way he carried himself when they talked to him, the tone in his voice was, oh, this this guy's just a leader. And then, oh, by the way, the film's the film. You know, when he did get into the game, the plays that they saw that looked like the plays they wanted to run, they were like, all right, you know, if we can keep him upright, that's our guy. And where Hypo and Hooker have always connected is their EKG never leaves level, ever. When I saw Josh Heupel the morning of that Alabama game, biggest home game at Tennessee in almost 20 years, he looked like he was going to go teach a chemistry class. His shirt tail was out. You know, his pants weren't pressed. He looked like a guy that just was, all right, you know, let's go coach the spring practice. And Hendon Hooker looked the same way. And so, you know, the game did not eat them alive because they knew they could win it. Give us the overview, McGee. Like, I do want to relive here just the twists and turns and how this all ended up being so unbelievable. Well, the play that kind of summed it all up, because Tennessee's got a three-score lead in the first quarter. And Alabama, I think, committed seven penalties in the first quarter. And there I looked down at Nick Saban, and he looked like the anger character from inside out, right? <laughs> he looked just like him. Go back and look at the pictures. His hair was literally standing up. <laughs> no, this up. checks mean, out. It really does check out. out. And so it all felt right. Well, the next thing you know, uh, Alabama's got the game tied. And then Tennessee had an incredibly ugly-looking play where they fumbled the ball directly into a defender's hands who ran in for a score. So second and eight balls from their own 16. They balls out! Over the deck, picked up Bama, touchdown, Dallas Turner, scoop and score, an assist from Barrett Jones. And at that point in the stadium, oh, hell, here we go again. It's over. You know, we're going to lose. <laughs> but the team... Never believed that. Even when Bryce Young, the reigning Heisman Trophy winner, had the ball driving inside the closing minutes of the game with a chance to put this thing away. Again, in the stadium, no one will admit this now, in the stadium, it was a feeling of, well, here we go. We're going to win this guy the Heisman again. We're going to lose this game again. But on the Tennessee sideline, it, it never felt like that. It was an interesting comparison between 
how the 100,000 plus was reacting. Yeah. And then how the 100 guys on the sideline were reacting. And they don't care about the history. You know, what they care about is the here and the now. We as in, you know, the people in the stands. And so we obsess over the history. And, you know, back in the day when you're starting, uh, 22 was full of, of four and five year seniors and players. Those guys had all lived four losses in a row, five losses in a row. And and these guys on this team in this era, they were kind of immune to that. As far as they were concerned, all time, you know, series record between these teams was zero and zero. Snap, there it is, the kick on the way, and that kick is knuckling toward the upright, and it's good. Just gets over the upright. Chase McGrath wins the game for Tennessee. And here they come, everybody sharing in the celebration. That's how they approached Florida. That's how they approached Alabama. That's how they approach Kentucky, and that's how they will hopefully, if you're a Tennessee alum, uh, will approach Georgia this weekend. Yeah, I mean, these kids, McGee, and they are kids, they only know the thick clouds of cigars. You can't see it at home, but you can smell the cigar smoke here. You sure can. Can you explain that tradition specifically? Because I saw Peyton Manning. I saw Jalen Hyatt, the star receiver, smoking cigars together. What is that? So that goes back to in the early 1960s, talking about the the history of this series. The primary reason that Bear Bryant was hired at Alabama was to figure out a way to beat Tennessee because Alabama had struggled to beat them forever. And the Bear Bryant had, you know, signs of success when he was at Kentucky and at Texas A&M against Tennessee. He certainly knew how to coach against them. Well, his equipment manager uh, at Alabama in his early years was a guy who had worked at Tennessee and then was working at Alabama. And he hated Tennessee. He hated the way he'd left Knoxville. He just, that was the one game he wanted to win the third Saturday in October. And so he made a bet with the players, his equipment manager did, if we win the game, I will dance around the locker room, naked. And it's naked, by the way, because you know naked is when you don't have your clothes on. Naked is when you don't have your clothes on and you're up to something. And so <laughs> That's right, N-E-K-K-I-D. Right, and so that's the bet. Now, why the players got in on this, I have no idea. Well, that's been lost <laughs> to time. But as part, Alabama won the game in an upset, and as part of uh, you know his end of the bet, guy danced around the locker room with no clothes on, and then he threw in a cigar. I guess it's like a Groucho Marx thing. I don't know. <laughs> and so the following year when they played, that same equipment manager was like, all right, he packed a bunch of cigars. And so once Tennessee started smelling the cigar smoke after they lost Alabama, they're like, well, the hell with you guys. We're going to do that too. And so now there are all these, all of these classic pictures <laughs> since the early 60s of the winners of this game smoking these cigars. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. That was fun, too, because, again, it felt like Tennessee had a legit chance against Alabama this year for the first time in forever. And calling local cigar shops around Knoxville, they were selling out. Everyone likes to tell you that they smoked some, you know, encased in glass, out of the humidor, you know, hand-rolled cigar. The reality yeah. was... Most of the people that I saw were smoking like Swisher sweets, right? They were, they were smoking <laughs> yeah, not something. Quite they, cigar yeah, aficionado. Something yeah. they picked up at the Quick Trip for ninety nine cent. That's what they were smoking. But it also wasn't just the cigars, right? When I think of this scene, I think of the footage 
of of the uprooting of goalposts from Neyland Stadium, McGee, and the depositing of said goalposts into the river. Yeah, I. That's the only of all this. That's the one part that I question. And, and I've had my my bouts with Tennessee fans over the years. I had. I tell you a story. So the morning of the game. Marty Smith and I got on a golf cart and rode from our set up at Thompson Bowling Arena by the football stadium down to the river to do a scene with the Vol Navy. And as we were riding back, this woman, we watched her run from her tailgate all the way down to Neyland Drive. And all of a sudden, she pulled out a bullhorn, like an electric bullhorn, and starts pointing and screaming at me. You turned your back on us. You turned your back on us. And I said to her, I said, what the hell are you talking about? And she goes, don't talk to me that way. But the point is, I've had my issues with, with the Tennessee <laughs> fan base of the way they've conducted themselves sometimes over the last 15, 16 years. I had no issue with anything anyone did in Knoxville the night after the Alabama game, except I'm not sure why you throw the goalposts in the river. <laughs> it, it seems like there's a lot of better. Take it to the fire department. And get the jaws of life and cut it up into sections. You know, have a souvenir for life. Put the damn thing on eBay. Why are you throwing it in the river? <laughs> but they did, and um, that's what they felt like was appropriate at the time. And uh, sense was out the window at that point. Yeah, let's baptize some things. You baptize something down in the river. That's as East Tennessee as it's possibly going to get. And so, <laughs> so you, I think you may have just explained it to me. <laughs> But now we move from Neyland, we move from Rocky Top to Georgia, McGee, and this is the game. Yeah, this is number two, Tennessee, visiting number one, Georgia, sitting atop the whole country. And the SEC championship game is effectively on the line here, right? I mean, you've painted the picture of the psychology of this program for generations. What does all of it feel like to you right now? It feels like the biggest regular season game in the history of Tennessee and Georgia. When I was in school in the 90s, Tennessee was in the middle of a nine-year winning streak against Georgia. Um, and I think Georgia now has won five in a row. Um, they, and it's not just that they've won the games. I mean, the average margin of victory in these games is like three touchdowns. I mean, it isn't just beating Tennessee. It's crushing Tennessee. And so this is the last checklist on this revenge obstacle course that Tennessee has <laughs> yes. run this year. You know, and we haven't beaten Florida forever. Beat Florida. Haven't beaten Alabama forever. Beat Alabama. And now Georgia is really the team that has beaten Tennessee the worst on the scoreboard over the last half of a decade. And not only that, you're playing there. You know, Alabama was in Neyland. You know, Kentucky was in Neyland. The biggest games have been at home. Now you got to beat them on the road. One of the toughest environments in college football. It'll be interesting to see because Tennessee will lose a game at some point. That's how football works, whether it's this year or next year or whatever. But once they finally do lose that game, it'll be interesting to see how quickly the message boards. It's, it's a rubber band <laughs> we have stretched so far with positivity. It'll be interesting <laughs> to see how far it snaps back to. I told you that guy didn't know what the hell he's doing, Ryan. Uh, Ryan McGee, thank you for being emotionally naked with us on ESPN Daily. Yeah, and uh, apologies to the Fulmer family, but y'all know how I felt before we started recording this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't think they are going to accept that apology, but nonetheless, I am Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and I'll talk to you tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>